what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Eyewitness testimony. It's still considered by many to be a very strong and reliable source of evidence in a trial. If you have a confident witness on the stand during a trial who can sit there and point someone out to say they are certain that that person is the one responsible for the crime, it can be extremely compelling for a jury. But just how reliable are our memories. There are many causes when it comes to wrongful convictions, false confessions, tunnel vision by investigators, jailhouse informants, false guilty pleas or plea deals. However, the number one cause for wrongful convictions is eyewitness identification error contributing to approximately 70% of known wrongful convictions that have since been overturned by DNA testing. During my time creating this show, we have featured a number of cases where eyewitness testimony would be one of the key pieces of evidence that saw people incarcerated for crimes they say they are innocent of. Damien Skinner, who was convicted for a gangland shooting, was so because of one person who said they saw him drive in the direction of the crime. Because all the evidence they had on me, it's just, except one guy said he seen me, but it's a guy that we had competition with. He said he seen me in the car that had not out of, but he didn't actually see me commit the crime. He said he seen me in the car and put the heaven out of. This whole case is, I think about it the last 27 years, like... I'm still in here because the system don't work. Evaristo Salas Jr., now of course exonerated, but was convicted in part because of eyewitness testimony of the victim's wife. Her 
version of what happened was totally different than everybody else, you know, that heard it and seen it. She just said that she pulled in, her and her boyfriend were talking. It was dark, it was foggy, and she kind of looks in the rear view mirror. Once she says she looks in the rear view mirror and sees some kids approaching. On another statement, she says that she actually got out of the car, looked back, seen a taller one that looked about 15 and a shorter one that was nine, nine years old or seven years old. And then she looked down at her boyfriend and said, that's him. That she said she looked at the killer for three seconds, looked down at her boyfriend and said, motioned to look over there thinking they were his friends, walked away and then heard two shots. And then six months later, after seeing countless montages of photos, she picks me out of the photo. Temujin Kenzu found himself sentenced to life without parole after an apparent eyewitness said that they saw him drive past after the shooting which took the life of Scott Macklem in 1986. The morning of the murder, a guy comes forward all on his own and he said he saw a suspicious car in the parking lot that morning. No crime. He said the person was um, wearing a hat pulled down all the way down to his eyes and a coat collar all the way up to his chin. So you're talking about like two inches of face visible. And I could tell he kind of had a scruffy beard and hair sticking out from under the hat over his eyes. Really important, by the way, because I didn't have that. And it says no further information available on the driver. And of course, our latest case of the Kane brothers, who were convicted due to more eyewitness testimony. Gillian, his statement changed two or three times. I'm not sure exactly how, I just know they changed. I know they got longer because I'm sitting there like, it's like he couldn't even identify us at first. When he came to line up, he couldn't point none of us out. He looked me dead in my face, like in my face with a gun, and he couldn't identify me in the city jail. But then you turn around and you pointed all of us out in the courtroom. Like, how did you see? And then he says he's seen everything looking out a window, but if you listen to the 911 tape, which is, is, is gruesome, you don't really, I mean, it just sounds horrible, but when you listen to it, he's talking, he's looking out the window, his wife's on the other end looking out the window. They go running upstairs and downstairs to come out the front door, and on the way he stops, I guess he grabs a gun. By the time he gets outside, my brother has already got Mark up, and you hear his truck revving up like he's about to leave. So how did you see anything? With eyewitness testimony playing such a large role in so many cases, I thought it was about time we got an expert on to discuss this topic. Hey, Jack. Hello, Doctor. How are you? Good. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well indeed. It looks sunny there. Is it, what's the time for you? My name is Laura Smallars, and I'm an associate professor of psychology at Arizona State University. I have a research lab that examines um, legal issues from a psychological perspective. We focus primarily on eyewitness identification evidence, uh, for example, from police lineups and the reliability of, of eyewitness identification evidence and how people such as jurors perceive that kind of evidence in the courtroom. Dr. Smallars came recommended to me by another expert, Dr. Kyle, who we had on recently to discuss police interrogation methods and false confessions. Dr. Smallars is a wealth of knowledge in this area and has consulted in a number of cases involving eyewitness identification evidence. Evidence which, as mentioned, is still very powerful and compelling to juries across the globe. People assume that an eyewitness who was at the crime scene and who is sitting before them, say, in the courtroom, saying, I'm sure that the defendant is the person I saw commit the crime, it's very compelling. And um, people often believe eyewitnesses because eyewitnesses in such cases aren't motivated to lie. They're trying to make an accurate decision and and speak uh, truthfully about what they believe they witnessed. But because memory is fallible, we know that mistakes 
do happen. And there are a variety of circumstances um, that can increase the likelihood of those kinds of errors and make those eyewitnesses very compelling, even though they are mistaken. Um, Nowadays, people are, are increasingly becoming aware of the fallibility of eyewitness memory. So sometimes when people find out I study eyewitness memory, they'll say something like, oh, eyewitnesses, they're so unreliable. And on the one hand, it's great that people now are starting to appreciate the fact that memory is imperfect um, and it can uh, mislead us. Um, at the same time, memory can be reliable. Um, we all, you know, have experiences of meeting someone and being able to remember that person. And the next time we see them, we remember that person. Um, there's, of course, a range of uh, there's variability in people's abilities to recognize faces. But in generally, we can do that. Um, but in the case of eyewitness memory, the types of uh, sort of simple limitations of memory become really consequential. And um, so what eyewitness researchers focus their attention on typically is on factors that the legal system can implement to increase the reliability of eyewitness memory because people are capable of remembering people who they've previously witnessed. And it's just important for the legal system to be able to use procedures that maximize uh, the reliability of people's memories instead of undermining um, the quality of of that memory evidence. Because there's been, uh, you know, lots of tests and stuff done on how, you know, reliable people are with their memories. And I've seen a number of them, you know, just just fun experiments that have happened where someone's been sitting, you know, maybe in a cafe and just chatting between one another and all of a sudden they'll set up a guy to come across and suddenly have a conversation with them and, you know, a really in-depth conversation sometimes and a, you know, a back and forth and then they leave and everything goes on about normal and then they're all brought together and say, hey, can you pick this person out. This one I'm thinking about recently that I saw where this guy had a big beard and, you know, he was quite a recognisable gentleman. But I think only one person managed to pick him out from the line. But even that person was like, oh, I think it, it, it looks like it could have been that person. Yeah, memory is is imperfect to begin with. Um, that's a that's a great example and it's a fun demonstration and an easy one to do in a classroom or with a group of people where you stage something because um, little, you know, minor details that are normally inconsequential in terms of, oh, what exactly did that person say or what was that person wearing or what was that person's facial hair like? These aren't things that we typically focus on and um, pay attention to and try to encode into our memory. And so later when we're called on to speak to those things. Oftentimes we, we can't even after, like you said, you know, a many minutes long conversation with someone. Um, and so, um, in terms of estimates of the reliability of eyewitness memory. So we know, we know a good amount now, uh, from field data of real eyewitnesses to serious crimes. Um, there are so far, um, just over 10 published peer-reviewed studies that have looked at eyewitness performance in real police investigations. And we know that around uh, just under a quarter of all of those eyewitnesses, and it's um, from data from almost 7,000 lineups, around a quarter of those witnesses made an erroneous identification when they were shown a lineup in a real case, which was a powerful finding for the um, for the research base because previously some people would argue that the results of lab experiments that psychologists had conducted with oftentimes college student participants mm. in a very contrived setting, often using videos that 
error rates estimated based on those lab studies would overestimate the rate of errors in real cases. People would, um, thought that real eyewitnesses would be much more cautious because it's someone's life that's on the line. But in fact, we see a, a surprisingly high rate of erroneous identifications, even from real world eyewitnesses, one out of every four of whom are making a mistaken identification upon being shown a lineup. Many of these tests have been conducted over the years as to the accuracy of eyewitnesses in a crime. In fact, a show on the BBC in the UK did such an experiment many years ago. They took a group of 10 volunteers who had all signed up to take part in a documentary about memory. During the documentary, they took a pause to go for lunch to a pub one afternoon. All the volunteers believed that they were simply on a lunch break and were completely unaware that they were about to be witnesses to a crime. Everyone in the pub was an actor. And all of a sudden, a large altercation takes place where a man begins to make a massive scene, which ends in someone being stabbed. Six weeks later, the volunteers would be brought back and shown a photo lineup from the pub that day. Out of the ten contestants that were in the pub that day, none of them picked out the man who actually committed the crime. Worrying still, two of them would pick out a man as the murderer, a man who had never even been in the pub at all. And the way that we know that error rate, because of course in a real case, the police don't know if the person who they suspect is actually guilty or is actually innocent. Um, and it might also be helpful here to um, share something that I didn't know before I started studying eyewitness identification in graduate school, that in a proper police lineup, only one person in that lineup should be under suspicion. Everyone else in that lineup should be a known innocent person. Police often call them fillers, at least in the U.S., and um, so there there should always only be one person who is under suspicion as as potentially being the perpetrator. Um, so, again, with real world data, we don't know if that suspect is actually the culprit or if they are innocent and the police are just thinking they may have committed the crime. But we do know that everyone else in the lineup is not the culprit. And so we get this estimate of the error rate from real cases based on how often witnesses are picking those known innocent fillers. Um, we don't know, obviously, when witnesses pick the suspect in real cases, sometimes that suspect is going to be innocent. Those are sort of undiscoverable errors in real cases, but filler identifications are known errors. And um, yeah, they happen one out of every four times a real world eyewitness is shown a lineup. See, for some reason, I, I assumed that when they built their lineup, they just found other people on their database, other criminals who looked like the guy that they thought it was or the girl they thought it was and went, OK, well, you know, these all sort of look similar. Let's put all these together and see what they choose. I didn't realise they had to just get randoms. They should be people who match the description that the witness gave yeah. and, and keep the suspect from standing out. The police need to do a good job creating their lineup when they when they select those fillers, but um, they shouldn't be other suspects. And the reason for that is because the presence of those known innocent fillers gives the police a mechanism for exposing errors. Yeah. If it's, it's like um, if you are giving a test as a, an instructor or a teacher and it's a multiple choice test, but every answer is correct, 
the students don't have to have studied anything. They don't yeah. have to know anything to get the right answer. So it's important to have options that are known to be incorrect to help expose those um, those identifications that are based on a mere guess or um, witnesses who have a poor memory, but who are trying to be helpful with the investigation, who are going to go ahead and um, try to pick the person who looks closest to their memory, which which often happens. This phenomenon of witnesses feeling like they need to choose someone or they want to choose someone. Um, it's a powerful social influence in I in eyewitness invest cases involving eyewitness evidence. Um, especially if the witness, you know, is told by the police days after the crime, like, okay, we we have a, a possible suspect who may have committed this and we'd like you to come down and see if you can pick that person out. That's really suggestive. And the witness yeah. goes down to the station feeling like it's my job to find the person. Yeah, this person's in here. I just need to find exactly. them. Yeah. Right. And so one of the um, best practice recommendations that scientists have um, tested and, and put forth to the legal system is that witnesses should always be told before they see a lineup that the person who they saw commit the crime may or may not be in the lineup. Um, and that saying that they don't see the person there is a totally acceptable response to kind of take that pressure off of witnesses and alert them to the possibility that the right answer might be it's none of these people. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about that. You say, you know, if police do this correctly, obviously, I mean, I hear so much that this particular lineup was so suggestive. I mean, even in one particular case that we discussed, a guy called Temujin Kenzu, his particular lineup, they brought the the witness along to see if he could identify Temujin. And Temujin remembers that, you know, they're in this lineup and he heard the witness go, well, I know it's not those two because they were cops. <laughs> They take me to a lineup. In Port Huron in 1986, you stood on a, on a little wooden box with a black cloth screen in front of your face and a bright light. You can see right through the screen and you can hear everything they're saying and doing. So I see this guy walk up saying, oh, it's so hot and the light's in here and things like that. He goes, he goes, but if I had to say anybody, and he picks out number six, James Loxton, a man who looks nothing like me. Another person comes up, picks out James Loxton. Same guy who looks nothing like me. But Rennie Gobain, the hypnotized witness, and my photo's already been in the paper, he walks up and he says, well, I know him and I know him and I know the guy you're looking for has brown hair, so I'll say him. And that's how he picked me out, everybody. And my first thought is, how the hell does he know two people in a police lineup? Well, turns out they were, they were police officers that were in my lineup. 
it's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I mean, when it comes to those proper practices of how it's supposed to be conducted, do police have a gu- these guidelines that they must follow or is it just the Wild West and they're just like, oh, well, let's just get four photos? They should absolutely be following practices that research has shown uh, increase the reliability of eyewitness identification evidence. Unfortunately, to date, there's no um, nationwide requirements in the United States about the practices that police must use. Um, these best practices are adopted on more of a jurisdiction to jurisdiction level or state to state level. So there are a lot of police jurisdictions and agencies across the United States that have adopted best practice reforms, but it's not blanket adoption across the entire country. And so there are still a lot of places, including the state that I live in, Arizona, that um, don't have any requirements across the board in terms of what police need to do to conduct a proper identification procedure. The scenario that you're describing with this case that you looked at is an example of a really problematic procedure that has been identified by researchers as suggestive and an issue when the lineup fillers don't serve as legitimate alternatives to the suspect. Best practice is to include at least five fillers. And these are, you know, good quality fillers who serve as a legitimate alternative to the suspect, not people who make the suspect stand out. Um, And the suspect can stand out by virtue of being the only one who actually looks like the person the witness described or because of other characteristics um, of the photos, or in the case of a live lineup, which it sounds like that was in that case. Oftentimes, they'll use police as stand-ins for live lineup procedures, which are relatively less common than photographic lineup procedures. But there's a case, for example, in the U.S. of a man named Marvin Anderson, My name is Marvin L. Anderson. Um, I was born in Hanover, Virginia. Uh, uh, 1982, I went to trial and was convicted of two counts of rape, sodomy, robbery, and abduction. I uh, was sentenced to a total sentence of 210 years. The victim reported that the attacker was a light complexion black man. She described some other characteristics and that he had said to her that he had dated a white woman and the investigating officer knew someone in the neighborhood, a black man who was dating a white woman and said, maybe it's him, Marvin Anderson. From day one, everyone in the community knew who committed the crime. Um, when I was arrested for it, you know, the community was, you know, wait a minute, they had the wrong person. He was there that day in court. Um, so it wasn't like They had to go find him. He was there. They wanted to put his photo into a lineup to show to this witness, but he didn't have a record, so he wasn't in their database. So they um, pulled a photo from his employer and put it into a lineup. But Anderson's photo was the only photo in color. All the other photos were in black and white. And the witness picked him, even though Anderson, as his lawyer argued, is dark-skinned, not light complexioned. Um, And something that's really compelling about this particular case in terms of showing the power of that 
suggestion, directing her attention to that one photo in color. It turns out years later, after DNA testing exonerated Anderson, the man she had mistakenly identified, it matched a guy who was in that lineup in one of the black and white photos. He was there, but she forewent identifying him and picked the man whose photo stood out because it was the only color photo with his like employee ID on it, whereas other photos were just black and white. But that's just, it's just insanely, uh, like, it just blows my mind that that can even be put together. They can even go, we're giving you this person black and white photos apart from one photo. I mean, even just presenting black and white photos in a lineup, it's like, how can anyone tell anything from a black and white photo? <laughs> How that even gets through a court? You know, I'm sure the defence may have would probably argued it, but how a judge doesn't go, what is going on here? You can't do a lineup with all black and white photos and just one colour photo. Of course, she's going to go for the colour photo because it's the only one that would probably look remotely like who she thought it might be. My mind is also blown by the things that you see in real cases. So I was paroled in '97, and five years later, you know, I'm still fighting for my freedom. I was on Interstate 95 uh, on my way home, and Peter called me up on the phone. What are you doing? And I was like, I'm on the interstate heading home. And that's when he said, well, we found your evidence. I can't officially say you've been excluded, but you've been excluded. And I was like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) I'm only five minutes away from home. And he was like, okay, call me back when you get home. So I'm, you know, I'm driving along, and you like, man, you're going to be free. You know, you finally can prove your innocence. Other examples, there are cases where the person was put into the lineup, they're the only member of their racial group, or the suspect is dressed in prison clothes because they're, you know, being held in jail and no one else in the lineup is dressed in, in prison clothes. Um, or where the police will specifically put the suspect into the clothing, like the color shirt that the witness described the person is wearing, and they're the only one in that shirt. So there are a variety of ways in which this the safeguards of a properly conducted lineup with fillers who protect an innocent suspect are just totally washed away through these kinds of suggestive procedures that lead anyone who has no memory of who committed the crime to be able to say in the lineup, that's the person it must be, because that person just stands out as the, as, you know, different somehow or is the only viable option. You talk about the police trying to sort of recreate the way someone looked for a lineup. I mean, going back to the Temujin case again, he talks about how they, while he was arrested and in lockup, they would not allow him to shave, no haircuts, no shaves, because the witness believed that the person who did this crime had a, had a beard and Temujin didn't have a beard. So they, they, they put through an order of no shaving. He needs to grow his facial hair out. I didn't have hair long enough to stick under a hat. I had a punk rock shag. Uh, my hair was not long enough to stick out under a hat. It was there were bangs in the middle of my frickin' forehead. So there goes their witness. So what did they do? They tried to force me to grow my hair and beard to look like the suspect. So Robert Cleland wrote a no shaving, no haircut order. I have his actual written order if anybody wants to see it. Don't let him shave, don't let him uh, cut his hair. And of course I was denied access to morning shaves and, and haircut services. 
So my hair grew out long enough that it would have been able to stick out under a hat and I had a big beard. But again, this was back in the 80s as well. So, you know, yeah. I mean, and the case you mentioned obviously was the early 80s. So have you seen um, that it has improved since then? Or are we still having these same issues within the last sort of 10, 15 years? So we hope that things have improved as knowledge has improved about these practices and their um, powerful effects on eyewitness decision-making um, have been documented through research, which um, has you know got its start in the 70s, but really started to gain a lot of traction in the 90s um, and into the 2000s after post-conviction DNA testing came along and started to expose these yeah. errors and many of them involved eyewitness misidentification. And so then the legal system really started to um, kind of pay attention to the alarm bells that eyewitness scientists had been ringing about the problematic practices that cropped up in, in cases back then. But we know that these still take place nowadays. I, you know, I hope that these egregious examples of biased lineups are less common nowadays. Um, there's not, to my knowledge, any good uh, sort of longitudinal data showing how these practices may have changed over time. But we do know based on some recently collected field data um, and a paper published in just the last couple of years that um, real world lineups were biased against the suspect, meaning the suspect stood out in some way more than the fillers um, between like 30 and, and 33 and 68% of the time. And so that's not to say that these were the kinds of egregious instance um, instances of suggestion like we've been talking about. But in these cases, researchers used a procedure to test how often people were able to discern basically who was the suspect. And if people can guess who the suspect was at a rate higher than chance, then it indicates that the lineup is not fully protecting the suspect. And yeah, from a, a study of over 1,500 police lineups between a third of them and 68% of them across these five jurisdictions were not sufficiently protective of the suspect in terms of the quality of the fillers in the lineup. So it's still unfortunately an issue. There's one case that I wanted to share mm. that gives an example of a way in which memory can be contaminated by police practice. It's a case of Troy Davis. A Georgia clemency board will decide tomorrow whether 42-year-old Troy Davis will be put to death for the murder of a Savannah police officer. On August 19th, 1989, in Savannah, Georgia, people witnessed a man who was seen to be holding a 38 caliber handgun arguing with and harassing a homeless person in a darkened parking lot. A nearby off-duty police officer, Mark McPhail, would intervene and, during the altercation, was fatally shot. In the days following the event, a man, Sylvester Coles, who went by Red Coles, went to the police and said, this guy Troy Davis was the shooter. The police arrested Troy Davis and put his photo up all over the media as the lead suspect in this case. So people in the public knew about this killing of this young police officer, that this guy whose photo they were seeing was the person who the police were looking for. Once the police rounded up the eyewitnesses who were there the night of the shooting, they staged a reenactment where they brought all of the witnesses back to the crime scene. They put red coals 
in the position of a bystander. He's the one who said Troy Davis was the shooter. But in fact, to this day, many people believe that Red Coles was in fact the person who shot the officer. He admitted to being the one in the altercation with the man in the parking lot. Others reported that they saw him with a gun, whereas Troy Davis never had a gun. No gun was found. There was no physical evidence linking him to the crime. But the police pursued their uh, investigation of him. They got all of these eyewitnesses to identify Davis as the killer. And he was convicted based basically only on testimony from all of those eyewitnesses. At his trial, Davis was sentenced to death. He always said that he was innocent, that he wasn't the shooter. And when he was on death row leading up to his execution date, his execution was stayed multiple times after um, many high profile people got um, involved in the case, including Reverend Al Sharpton, um, former President Jimmy Carter. There were thousands of people who signed petitions asking for his case to be reexamined. Ultimately, there was a federal judge who was ordered to re-examine his case. And at that point, this was in 2010, so 20 years after the original crime, some of the witnesses had passed away, but there were affidavits from those witnesses and statements from all of the witnesses except for two, one of whom was Red Coles, the guy who many people think did it. And all of these witnesses, seven of nine, came forward and said that they were coerced by police to identify Troy Davis as the shooter that they didn't see the shooter or knew it wasn't him, but the, co- the police basically essentially interrogated these witnesses and wouldn't let them leave, as the witnesses said, unless they told the police what they wanted. But seven of these uh, nine witnesses recanted their testimony. Davis was in the crowd, but denied he was the killer. Seven of the nine prosecution witnesses have now recanted. Four who said they saw Davis pull the trigger and three who claimed Davis told them he was the killer. All seven now allege pressure by police to blame Davis. Even though, you know, the case basically completely unraveled, the federal judge said, you know, he could recognize that the case wasn't ironclad, but he didn't reverse the conviction. Ultimately, the Supreme Court agreed to review his petition, but they denied his request for a stay of execution. Um, and he was executed oh. by lethal injection Gee, on man. September 21st of 2011. And many people believe that he was innocent. He said that he was not personally responsible for what happened that night, that he did not have a gun. He said to the family that he was sorry for their loss, but also said that he did not take their son, father, brother. He said to them to dig deeper into this case, to find out the truth. He asked his family and his family and friends to keep praying, to keep working and keep the faith. And then he said to the prison staff, the ones he said who are going to take my life, he said to them, may God have mercy on your souls. And his last words were to them, may God bless your souls. Then he put his head back down. The procedure began and about 15 minutes later, it was over. Do you think cases that solely rely on eyewitnesses should never make it to court? That's a tough question. I think it would be ideal to have more evidence than just the testimony of an eyewitness. However, I think there are certainly cases that you could imagine in which the identification of an eyewitness would be sufficient evidence. For example, if an eyewitness 
say, a, you know, a person is kidnapped and spends days or weeks with the kidnapper yeah. and really knows what that person looks like. If that witness identifies that person, you know, with high confidence, especially from a proper pristine procedure, that's, that's good evidence yeah. um, that, that that's the perpetrator. But the reality is that most cases aren't like that where memory is so strong. Um, many cases involve um, factors that we know undermine the quality of memory, fleeting events, stressful events, dark lighting conditions, far distance, um, the presence of a weapon, which um, tends to take witnesses' attention away from the face of the person and, yeah. and onto the weapon. Um, if the perpetrator is a different race than the eyewitness, these are all factors that in real cases weaken the strength of the witness's memory of the person and then open the door to um, the possibility that either that the witness will make a simple error from a, a properly conducted procedure, which if a witness is picking and the person's not there, one out of every six times in a six-person lineup they're going to pick the innocent suspect. So there's always that possibility of error. Proper procedures can can really kind of keep that error relatively low, but the the procedures have to be pristine um, because as soon as they slip away from those you know best practice conditions, then an identification could be a result of of those other contaminants or or procedural suggestion. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much indeed for for talking us through this very important subject. You know, it's one of those things where I think people need to know more about these bits and pieces so that one day if they are in a jury, that they may question an eyewitness as opposed to just taking it as fact. And and that's what happened. It's definitely a fascinating topic and I, I do appreciate your time. I'm very happy to have spoken with you about it. Thanks for having me on. I'd like to say a big thank you to Dr. Smallers for, of course, giving up her valuable time to talk us through this very important topic, and we will no doubt have her back on the show very soon. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted, and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay. Listener.